0: Hi guys, welcome back to Tennis Pal Chronicles, the podcast to feed your passion for all things tennis. I'm PK, coach at the Langham Huntington Hotel, as well as the city of Azusa in sunny Southern California. And with me is my beautiful co-host, Valerie.
1: Hey, PK, how's it going?
0: It's going so great. I'm super glad that we're together again and we get to enjoy each other's company and talk about tennis, our pastime and our passion. Yes, our favorite thing, right? I miss being with you. I miss talking about tennis.
1: It's been a while. It's been a a long while.
0: Yeah, and lots of tennis has happened, but today we're not going to talk about the pro tour. We're actually going to talk about mental toughness and what it means to integrate the mental side and the physical side of tennis with our guest, David Breslow.
1: Awesome. Well, uh, how about a little backdrop on David Breslow?
0: David Breslow is the founder of Performance Success Strategies and he created Wired to Win. So basically the podcast is about mental toughness in tennis and just the idea of integrating the mental game and the physical game to have a more complete strategy to win. David has an all around performance approach that gets tennis players playing better, more quickly and consistently. Valerie, did you know he was the director of mental toughness at the USTA National Tennis Center?
1: I did not. That sounds pretty good.
0: I I think it's pretty impressive. That's where they play the US Open. So that's kind of Huge.
1: If you uh, are employed by the USTA, you got to have something.
0: Something, something. And he also was doing weekly mental game contributions and a guest on the Golf Channel. So uh, a lot of the mental strategies that he uses are for tennis and golf. And his clients include pro and amateur athletes from all around the world.
1: Nice. Can't wait to hear all about it.
0: So we'll come back after the interview and talk a little bit about mental toughness, offer some resources for people. But Bella, I'm so glad you're back on the podcast with me. It's great to have you here.
1: Yeah, I had a nice fun vacation. <laughs> <laughs> I was working, working, working. <laughs> you were working, working, working.
0: I know it's been a really busy season, but we're back on the Tennis Pal Chronicles podcast. Just
1: in time for the off season. Just Woo-hoo. kidding. <laughs>
0: All right, let's listen to our interview with David Breslow. David, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you on Tennis Pal Chronicles.
2: Thank you, Philip. I uh, really appreciate the invitation. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Oh, it really is an honor. I mean, your, your history and your experience is very impressive. And I, I think our listeners would love to know a little bit about you as a person. So where did you grow up and how did you find tennis?
2: I am a Buffalonian by birth. Buffalo, New York, home of the cold and the snow,
0: and the indoor
2: <laughs> tennis in the winter, and the outdoor tennis in the two weeks of summer. <laughs> no, it's not really that bad, but I'm I'm originally uh, Buffalonian, and that's where I learned to play the game, and that's where I first started playing the game in high school. Oh, my two favorite sports when I growing up in Buffalo were tennis, which I played first, and I, I started kind of late in. Uh, maybe 10th grade or so and hockey which I started in 11th grade which is really late for a hockey player but I grew up loving tennis the first player I ever saw was Ken Rosewall if uh, if they're 40 or 45 they remember Ken Rosewall an Australian back in the days with Rod Laver and all those Australian players and I saw Ken Rosewall on TV and I thought huh I would love it to play like him And my game, believe it or not, ended up looking just like him with very flat uh, ground strokes and and an all-court game. He he created such an impact on me when I saw him playing Wimbledon on television that I literally was watching him and mimicking his movements. And that became the movements that I basically played my game with. But the hockey, I fell in love with uh, after that and ended up playing hockey till my early 50s and still playing tennis as my first love.
0: Wow, that is super exciting. And how did your passion for sports hockey and tennis, how did that turn into something professional for you?
2: Well, that's a really good question because for me, uh, I was one of those tennis players that looked really good on the practice court. But then when I played matches and somebody held up the balls and said, these are good, I tended to fall apart. And I couldn't understand why. I just, when I played competitive tennis, I was nowhere near the same player that I was when I was on the practice court. And I asked everybody around and asked all the better players, and I read all the books on tennis psychology and so on and so forth. And none of it really helped. But I got so frustrated by that. And I talked to so many amateur players who, were also frustrated, and they tried everything that was out there. And I looked at that, and I thought, you know what? I'm not the only one. There's something going on here. Why is it so difficult to get out of our own way? Why is all the stuff that that I'm reading and these other people are reading and the, the advice that they're getting just not working? There's something missing. And that's what led me to create my my program, which is called Match Tough. and I'll talk about that a little bit later if you if your folks want to know about it. But that's what led me to it, because one day I was playing competitive tennis locally in my area and I traveled down to New York to play a, an amateur tournament at the U, at the uh, location where the U.S. Open is at that time in Flushing in Flushing, Queens. And I lost in the first round and I was so ticked off because I had done this before. But I ended up losing to a player who wasn't nearly as physically good as I was. He just didn't have the physical talent. But I was so mentally weak that he ended up winning the match. And when I came up to shake hands with him at the end of the match, he just kind of brushed his forehead aside. And he said, phew, when we were warming up, I thought you were going to kill me. And I can't, I I can't tell you, uh, Philip, how many times I've heard that. Do you know how difficult that is to hear player after player saying that to me? And I'm like, damn, something's wrong here. And that day I went out to my car and I was so upset that I banged the roof of my car with my rackets and I'm yelling and I'm screaming at myself and I got so exhausted. I fell to my knees and that's when it came to me. I heard this little voice inside, I don't, I don't mean to make this sound like mystical or anything, but I heard this little voice inside my head and it said, why don't you go back to what you knew when you were younger? And I, I sat there on the ground, literally on the ground, the cement, and I'm looking around and I'm going, man, if anybody was videotaping this, they'd think I was nuts, put me in a loony bin. And uh, I heard this voice saying, go back, why don't you go back to what you knew when you were younger? Because when I was a younger chap, like 10 years old, 12, 13, I remember thinking that there's this thing going on with the mind-body relationship, and there's, there's something there that I, I kind of understood as a kid, the mind-body relationship. It, it, it made sense to me, and I forgot all about it. And so when I got older, 17, 18, 19, 20, I kind of deferred to the books and the experts, and the psychologists and my and my better playing friends, I deferred to them, but they didn't know much about this either. but that day at the at flushing, when I lost that match, it bothered me so much that I remembered all that stuff, and that's when I went home and put the the match tough program together. That's how all that started,
0: wow, so something started in you when you were 10 years old, you, you were carrying something that you had been given. Can you kind of describe that? The, the uh, thoughts that you have? I'll try to describe
2: it. It's it's a little strange, I suppose. I just, I, when I was younger, people used to come around me all the time and ask me questions about stuff. I mean, I mean, I'm 11, 10, 11 years old. They're asking me questions about relationships and about, you know, competitions and sports and things like that. And I would answer them. And then when they walk away, I'd go, how did I know that? I don't know how I knew that, but I said something really smart there, but I don't know how I knew that. So I had this innate wisdom, let's say, that, that I, just, I just came to this planet with, if people can accept that. I didn't study it. I didn't go to school for it. I was too young. for. I didn't get it at a university. I just had this innate wisdom about the mind-body relationship and how the mind works with the body how it's all connected to produce the experiences that we're having in in the world and on the tennis court. And it all made sense to me. I just, I was, honestly, I was afraid of it because nobody else was talking that way with in that world with my friends. So I got uncomfortable and I stuffed it back inside. And that's, you know, and I, I wasn't performing well at all, not just in tennis, but in hockey as well. At the beginning, but that match just triggered everything. I was so frustrated from having to go through that experience time after time after time, because I really was talented had a lot of good physical skills, but I just wouldn't produce them when it mattered the most. Even in social tennis, uh, as long as it counted, I was having a little bit of trouble. But when, when I was playing, you know, uh, practice matches against players, They would love to practice against me, but they didn't really enjoy playing me in competition because really good players, players who really get it, they want their opponent to play well. I never wanted that when I was younger. I was just hoping they would double fault and make a whole bunch of errors and let me get get the heck out of there with a win, which is totally the worst way to approach things. But that's the way I was when I first started out, Uh, totally mentally weak and I, I just completely dismissed everything I understood when I was younger, and I paid the price for it.
0: I'm sure a lot of tennis players can relate to that, um, just being able to rally really well and being very relaxed and, and hitting freely uh, during their rally period in mm-hmm. practice, but of course, during the game, really freezing up, maybe double faulting, those kinds of things. How did you right. How did you develop that after that? Um, on-your-knees moment in Flushing. What was, the pro- what was the progression? How did you see it grow in you? Well, I
2: went home, and the next day I pulled out a, a notebook, and I started writing down what I, what I knew that I knew about the mind-body relationship. And then I realized that they are governed, literally governed by laws, L-A-W-S, laws, that these things are not happening by accident. That there are certain laws that are in place that are governing how we think, how we feel, and what we do, and the outcomes that we get. So I sat with a piece of paper, and I kind of just – I was just processing things. And I realized – I boiled everything down to seven laws. There are seven laws by which the mind, the body, the emotions, and the energy function together to produce these experiences that I was having. And I gave the, the laws a name. I didn't invent the laws. People think I invented the laws, but that would be like saying I invented gravity. I didn't invent gravity. Neither did uh, Newton. Uh, he didn't invent gravity. He just gave it a name. So that's all I did. It was I took the laws that are already there. They already exist. And I gave them a name. And I put them in a sequence from one to seven, each one building on the one before. And that's how the program came to life and i approached the uh, the national tennis center in new york in uh, the the late 90s i'm sorry in the early 90s and i approached them because i heard that there was an opening for a director of mental toughness that's what they called it at the time and i called them up and i told them what i was doing and they said this is a question i get a lot like who are you because they hadn't heard of me I said, well, I'm nobody. I'm a, I'm a tennis player and a, and a teacher. I taught the game for 20 years as well. And uh, I said, I have this program. But I said, instead of me trying to talk you into it, why don't you give me a junior player and let him go through the program with me and then let him tell you if I'm any good or not? So they said, okay. So guess what? They send me this kid. He's probably 14 years old. I still remember him to this day. His first name was Tim, and he was like a mini John McEnroe. It was unbelievable. He was a left handed, redheaded, Irish tempered kid who just yelled and screamed on the court all the time, but was super talented. And they had brought in several psychologists to talk to this kid, and he just got rid of all of them. He didn't like them. So he walks in the room. First thing he says to me, he says, are you a therapist? And I said, no. And he goes, good. Because I don't, I don't want to talk to any more of those guys. I said, "No, I'm not going to teach you psychology. I'm going to teach you laws." He said, "Laws." I said, "Yeah, I'm going to teach you laws of human performance, and when you understand these laws, everything about your game is going to change." And he said, well, "Okay." So I spoke to the kid maybe three times out of our ten sessions, and he. The uh, director of the of the National Tennis Center was walking by me in the hall, and she stopped me and she said, "What did you do to Tim?" I said, "What do you mean?" And she said, "Well, he's behaving like an angel on the court, and he's not yelling at his opponent. He's not cheating anymore. What did you do?" I said, "I did exactly what I told you I was going to do, and I've only spoken to him three times, but now he understands how powerful he is because now he understands." how his inner life is working to produce these outcomes that he was getting before. And now he's using those same laws to produce the better outcomes. And he understands that. So now he's using that to his advantage. And the kid started playing some terrific tennis because he was always talented. I didn't teach the kid. I was working on his, quote unquote, mental game. So once that got freed up, all of the talent that he already had was able to produce itself on the court in matches. And at that time, at the National Tennis Center, they had junior match play every Friday night. So all the best juniors in the area were competing against each other. And all the parents could sit upstairs you know, and watch through the glass. And that's where that kid used to get in trouble. And everybody would be talking about the kid behind his back because he was such a problem. But then all of a sudden, everything changed. And in my mind, it's not me, it's the power of the laws. People think I'm a genius sometimes, it's not me, it's the laws. And it's the way every human being is put together. We all have a mind, we all have a body, we all have emotions and we all have energy inside of our body. And when a tennis player understands how those four things are linked together by law, not my opinion, their game just opens up. Whatever level that you're at right now, you start producing that level and even a little higher because you're not getting in your own way anymore. That was a bit of a long answer to your question. Sorry about that.
0: <laughs> well, that's great that uh, it helped Tim so much. I- I'd love to hear like your personal experience about how you started applying the laws that came to you and uh, how that looked practically on the court. Yeah. in your own
2: game. Well, you asked me that question and I have one specific moment that comes to mind all the time when I'm asked that question okay. that was the that was the moment that I knew everything turned around for me. I have been I had been using the laws and understanding them, and I was getting better and better at at match play, even socially. And one day I was playing in a tournament at my local uh, outdoor, court it was a a big park on long island and uh they had 12 courts there and it was it was a big tournament and i was playing a friend of mine in the first round and he started playing badly he started making errors and i remember i was a servant volley player so i remember uh approaching the net and he he hit this screaming forehand into the net and I, at that moment, I just stopped and I started yelling at him. He couldn't believe it. All the courts around me just stopped because I was yelling at him. I said, Barney, stop making errors. And he looked at me and he's like, what? You're winning. Well, what why are you yelling at me for? I said, I know, but stop making errors because when you make errors, you don't give me the opportunity to play my best tennis. That's what I said to him. And I've never said anything like that to anybody before. And I turned around. And I walked back to the baseline and I was laughing my behind off because I knew when I said that, I knew that it that the reality came to me at that moment because really good players, like I, I mentioned before, they want their opponents to play well. Because that means when you're play if I'm playing you, Philip, and you're playing well, that means I get to tap into my best abilities.
0: Sure. Both of, it, both it, players raise their levels.
2: Yeah. That's exactly right. And good players want that. When I, was, you know, when I was playing before, I didn't want that because I was so mentally weak. I wanted you to give me the match. But now I'm yelling at my friend. I walk back to the baseline and I'm smiling and I, he was serving. So I turned around and got set to receive serve. And in my mind, I was just basically going, come on, give me your best serve, man. You know, if you're mad, good. Give me your best serve. Hit it hit it 180 miles an hour. I don't care. Because if you're gonna give me your best, I'm gonna give you my best. And I want you to do that. That became my attitude. So from that moment on, I became a really tough out. If you beat me, you had to beat me. Which was great. So all the better players really enjoyed playing me from that point on. Up till then. They really didn't get anything out of it because, you know, it's no fun to beat somebody 6-1 to 6-1 and not get any pushback, not get anybody to drive you crazy. I mean, we saw that at the U.S. Open recently with Nadal and uh, Medvedev. This kid, the way he came back, made this thing an incredibly exciting match, and Nadal was pushed to the edge. But players like that.
0: He really was.
2: Oh, yes, he was for yeah. sure. But players like that, he eats that up. He loves that. He loves being pushed so that he can play his best tennis. And it made it great for us, the fans, to watch. doesn't get any better than that.
0: Yeah, and I guess some people out there might believe that that's a personality type. And maybe what you're trying to uh, in, encourage us is that it's actually something that can be learned. Well,
2: yeah, because this, its it's simple genius is what it is. Um, it has nothing to do with personality type. I'm talking about laws. See, that's a common thing that a lot of players will say to me. Well, I have a certain personality type. I'm aggressive or I'm a type A, I'm a type G, I'm a type Z. And I start laughing and going, guess what? The laws don't really care what type you are. Think about it this way, Philip. If you and I were up in an airplane and we were going to parachute and we're the only two in the plane, except the pilot, And the door opens, and it's your turn. You're gonna go first, and you're gonna jump. And before you jump, you turn to me, and you say, hey, Dave, uh, I don't believe in gravity. I never have, and I never will. I'm just gonna look at you and say, okay. And when you step out of the plane, Philip, what's gonna happen?
0: Gravity's gonna hit.
2: You're going down. (laughs) You're going down. So." This is what I say to people all the time. I say, your belief in the laws is not required for them to work. Your belief in gravity is not required for gravity to do what gravity does, right? Right. And your opinion of gravity is completely irrelevant. (laughs) You could like it, you could hate it, you could laugh at it. Gravity doesn't care what you think about it. Gravity is a law. Every law produces an outcome. So when I'm talking to clients... And they want to keep trying to go, yeah, but, yeah, but, but um, this kind of personality, or yeah, but, I'm um, 50 years old, or yeah, but, I'm um, 20 years old. I just say it doesn't matter. The laws are in place, and they will operate regardless of your age, your gender, your, your personality type, your skill level, where you live, how much money you make, how good you are how bad you are, none of those things are relevant. It's a law. Think of it just like gravity. It's a law. It doesn't care what you think. It doesn't care who you are. It operates exactly the same for you as it does for me, as it does for Nadal, as it does for Federer, as it does for Osaka. It doesn't matter who you are. It just doesn't matter. That's why I love talking about them because it takes all that personality stuff and all those like little excuses and and poor habits from the past out of the equation, which is which is why people like talking to me, because I don't need to talk psychology to them. It's one of the things that people love about this approach. There's zero psychology, which I call psychobabble, which is why so many players are confused. There's too much psychobabble out there. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to think. They don't know how to handle all these situations. And they're trying so hard to try to figure out how to relax, how to play, you know, uh, pressure points better, how to hold the lead, how to come from behind, how to stop double faulting. All these things that start to disappear once they understand the laws, because once you understand the laws, your mind, your body, your emotions and your energy are now in alignment. And every tennis player probably knows by experience that. They've had that moment when everything has been in alignment. I'm assuming you have too, Philip, when everything just seemed to be going great, right?
0: I think so, yeah.
2: You just felt – you. yeah, I'm sure you have. Everybody has. Everything just seemed to be going great. You felt really good. You were relaxed in your head. You were thinking clearly. You were making good choices. You're moving really easily. You're hitting the ball. And it seemed like you weren't even trying that hard, what a lot of people call the zone. And um, – I'm sitting here going, well, you can't learn how to do that. It's too hard. You can't learn how to do that. The zone shows up when your mind and body and emotions and energy are in alignment. And that's what the laws do. They put you back in alignment. So when you're in alignment, that's when you raise the level of your game. It's really magical. or It seems magical. I, I probably shouldn't use that word. It seems magical, but it's really not. It's a, te- it's a testament to how all human beings are put together. So if there's a genius out there, it's not me. It's, what, it's whatever entity made human beings this way. Okay, Like I said, we all have these components. We all have a mind, a body, emotions, and energy. And we all have the same ability to put them together in unison so that they're functioning together without interruption. That's all the zone really is. It's great. Players will call me all the time and say, how do, how do I get into the zone? I say, well, that's really not a good goal. How long have you been trying to do that? Oh, 10 years. <laughs> well, has it worked? No, not really. Yeah. Okay, well, that's not a very good goal. If you're successful like twice in 10 years, that's not really a good goal. The idea, the idea is not to get into the goal. The idea is to get into alignment. And that's going to produce that higher level experience automatically. That's the beauty of the laws.
0: Yeah. Well, I think uh, after all that you've shared, people would really want to get into alignment. So, can you share a little bit about how they would do that? Um, are you
2: asking me about the laws right
0: now? Oh, I'm just asking you to expound on it.
2: Well, the way to do that is to learn laws. It's that simple. Okay, that's that's the problem. That's my problem with the traditional approaches. There is no explanation. So, so
0: how, how do it's, our it's, listeners learn about the laws is what I'm asking.
2: Oh, well, you can go to my website and there's two choices there. I have a product called Match Tough. It is a, it is a uh, digital product that teaches the laws. There's nine audios. I'm teaching seven laws and there're there's two extra audios giving you some of my best drills and things like that, which I'm gonna, I wanna offer one of my drills before we leave here today. Uh, It's a nine audio program. It teaches everything that I teach, or you can do the live version with me, coaching over the phone, like you and I are talking right now. But to describe the laws would be be deleting, not deleting, but dismissive to the laws, because they can't be described in, in two sentences. So that would be cheating the laws and cheating the listeners. But the laws are there in two formats, in either a digital format, which is less expensive, of course. It's not really expensive at all. And then there's the live coaching, which is more expensive. So some people opt for the digital. Some people opt for both. They listen to the program, and then they want some follow-up coaching. Some people just want the coaching. They want to hear it direct from the horse's mouth. But everything is there. I don't cheat anything. It's not, a, it's not a marketing product to get you to do more and more and more. Everything you need is right there in the conversation. So I'm basically, I basically recorded the audio as if I'm having a conversation with you.
0: Oh, that sounds great. Um, you had talked a little bit about running through one of the drills. Can you share that with yeah. us?
2: Sure, I would love to. I call this the tension raider drill. Rater, Rater with a T, R-A-T-E-R, because tension is one of the most common killers of the ground stroke and the serve. And every pro will tell you that if they wish they could get their students to be less tense, but most people don't know how to do that. They just tell you, "Be, stop being so tense, and you're sitting there going, okay, I'll try. I don't really know what to do, but okay, I'll and try. Sometimes
0: that makes you more tense, right?
2: Yeah, it does, because now you're, you're trying to do what your pro is telling you, and he's watching you, he or she, and you know that they're watching. So you're, try, you're trying to do more to do less, and that's just backwards. So here's a really wonderful drill for you. It's called the tension rater drill. Uh, let's focus on the serve. Let's use it for the serve for the moment. So what you do is you bring out a little bucket of balls, and you can do this on your own. You don't need anybody around with you. And you hit you hit ten serves, one at a time, of course. You take the first ball and you hit the serve, and your only task is to rate the tension level. Pick an area of your body, let's say the, the arm, or the hand. You pick an area, let's say the arm. You pick an area of the body and you rate the tension level after you hit the ball. Without editing, without thinking. You're not paying attention to the result of the shot, which is what a lot of people do. Oh, oh, it didn't go in. We don't care about that right now. All you're doing is hitting your serve and then coming up with a number. So you you do your toss, you hit the ball, and then you go six because you're rating from one to ten. Ten being really tense and one being very loose. So you rate with a number and then you hit another ball. Oh, nine. Okay. Meaning you were pretty tense in your arm. Okay. Now your, do- your job is to try to reduce the tension and bring the number down by shaking out your arm and thinking about relaxation and slowing yourself down. And then you hit the next ball and you rate that. Let's say your, your third ball is a five. Okay. Going in the right direction. And then you hit your next ball, and maybe that's a three. But here's the beauty of this this drill. The mind loves reference points. So let's say you you practice, and you're going to go up and down. You'll go nine, six, eight, five, seven, five, seven, three. Ooh, that was good. Uh, Five, three, five, three, three, three. And what's going to happen is you're literally training your mind to have a relationship with the number. Number three is you're going to have that um, relationship to the number three in your mind. So then when you go out to the court and you feel yourself tensing up on your server, all you have to do is repeat the number three to yourself. And your mind is going to remember that experience because your mind mind is going to go, if, if it could speak, it would say, oh, I know what a three is. I remember what a three felt like. That was really relaxed. Okay, I know what you want. So three. I got it. I got it. And your mind will send that message to your body and your body will start to automatically calm down and relax to the experience that it had with the number three. Does that make
0: sense? It does. Um, is there an optimal uh, number that a Person is trying to get to. I mean, are you actually trying to get to zero intention? And then no, because that ruins the exercise right sure. away. And then also, how can does you, it
2: relate? Can you, to- can you guess? Can you guess why that ruins the exercise? Um, I guess it
0: it builds like a an expectation.
2: Bingo! You're trying. You're trying to purposely create an outcome which is automatic tension.
0: Right. So uh,
2: just do it. Yeah. Just- Let the number pop yeah. up. Let the number pop up. It's beautiful. Yeah. It really I'm works. I'm
0: excited to try this. But how does it relate to like um, kind of muscle strength, swing speed, um, and all of that? Um, like if I'm as loose as I, I literally have tried to hit as loose as I possibly can, and a racket has flown out of my hand when I'm serving. So how, how does it relate to, <laughs> to that?
2: That's a little bit. That's a little bit too loose. <laughs>
0: yeah. <a little>. Uh, <laughs> sad, sad for my racket too.
2: Well, think of it this way. Uh, A relaxed muscle is much stronger than a tight muscle. Much stronger. And the reason is very simple. If you take your hand right now, or anybody listening to this, take your right hand and make a fist, okay? A tense muscle looks just like your fist. It's closed from your thumb to your pinky, It's all tight, and the energy that's in your hand is stuck. You cannot – the energy is no longer moving smoothly from your thumb to your pinky, right? It can't. But if you open up your hand and let your palm face up to the ceiling or the sky, that is a relaxed muscle. The energy moves through that relaxed hand a lot faster, there's a lot more energy moving through the palm of your hand, moving through the fingers. Energy is power, Philip. So when your muscles are relaxed, that's, that means you have more power to give to the ground stroke or the serve. Think of, think, of your, think of hitting the tennis ball as nothing more than you transferring energy from your body into your racket into the back of the ball. That's all you're really doing but people don't think about it that way. They get in their heads and they start thinking about all the technique and the mechanics and all this stuff that blocks energy flow. So the relaxation, when you're at a nine, it feels very different than when you're at a three in this exercise. And when you're at that lower number, whatever that might be, anything under a five is pretty good because you will feel the difference. But when you're anything under that five, you're going to feel the, the difference in the freedom of the movement of your arm and your shoulder and the snapping of your wrist at the top of the serve, which is what you want. All of that stuff will start to happen because of the relaxation of the muscle fibers, because now you have this energy float, floating through the muscle. Does that make sense? It
0: does. That sounds like great advice. E- yeah.
2: energy Energy is power. Just remember that. Everybody listening, energy is power. And every time you're uptight, and you're tense, and you're frustrated, and you're nervous, and you're fearful, and uh, your ground strokes are hesitant, and all that—that's because energy is not flowing anymore. And all of that, believe it or not, starts in the head. It starts in the head, and all this, this, you know, vague psychology, and all this advice like, hey, just relax. Yeah, okay, well, that doesn't do it for most people. Or, hey, just be positive. That's another famous one. Just be positive. I don't th- I've been doing this over 25 years. I don't think one time I've ever told a client to be more positive. And they're shocked by that because they think when they pay me, that's what I'm going to tell them. I say, no, why would I tell you that? You already know that being positive is better than being negative, don't you? Yeah. Well, why, should I, why do you want to pay me to, have, to tell you that? And they go, well, I don't, but that's what I thought you were going to tell me. No, you already know that being positive is better. What you don't know yet is what's going on inside of you, the mechanics. You know the mechanics of hitting a forehand, a backhand, and a volley. What you don't know is the mechanics of the inner workings of your body. And the mechanics of the inside is what's creating the outside. But you don't know that. And the laws are what's making all that happen. So it's a really fun conversation, it's really very different. Uh, Like I said, there's no psychology, there's no vague concepts or anything like that. It's just the laws, they're very simple. It's just as easy to understand as the law of gravity. Everybody understands the law of gravity.
0: That sounds great, David, thank you. I I really appreciate that drill. I think that's gonna be a a really good start for people and they can definitely learn more. How, How would they find you on the internet?
2: I'm at www.mentaltenniscoach.com, mentaltenniscoach.com.
0: That's a perfect URL for you, Mental Tennis Coach. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, David, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your wisdom with our Tennis Pal listeners. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to keeping in touch and hearing more about all the exciting developments that are happening in your career.
2: Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. All right.
0: We'll talk to you soon.
2: Bye. Bye.
0: Well, that was our good friend, David Breslow. And wow, I liked a lot of the things that he shared. I think the mental game of tennis often is kind of split into two. We think of the mental game and then we think of the physical, the physical, the physical game. We talk about, What's going on in our brain, and then we talk about the technique. And I think what I like about what David said is that we need to integrate the two a lot more holistically,
1: yes, I feel like I could just do with
0: any of those things would be great. and couldn't you really relate to what he was saying? I mean, about really swinging easy during rallies and uh, you know, practice and warm up and you're just playing and you're just hitting the ball so cleanly, and you feel like, "Wow, this is so great. And then here comes the tension, here comes the match, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I related to him from the moment he opened his mouth and said like, I love tennis and hockey. And then, uh, so I was like, this is my guy. Um, and, and yes, how he uh, shared, you know, losing to people that he was quote unquote better than. Um, that's pretty much the story of my life. You know, you're warming up and, and you're like really good. You're like, oh, I'm gonna cream this person. Or I've played people who their like, first serve is weaker than my second serve. Yeah, And I'm like, I should be able to like win every single point on their serve. And I'm still not because uh, I definitely need to look into these laws um, and strengthen my mental game.
0: Well, and that's why tennis is such a harsh mistress, right? I mean, we have a hard time sometimes because it's so much about the expectation that we bring to the court. And um, you remember Coach Byron, he shared in the last podcast how one of his first losses at the USTA was playing against someone who he called a pusher who just was more consistent than him and beat him in Mm -hmm. one of his first USTA matches. And that has happened to me many times. And a lot of it is because I... Honestly, I think I'm better than the other person, and I shouldn't, right? I mean, that's the problem. I I definitely need to have confidence, but I don't. I shouldn't be overconfident, and so that fine line of knowing your skill and finding the ball and playing in the moment, all of that, is so hard and and yet so challenging and fun when you can master it. If you if you can ever master it, I
1: know I'm waiting for the, at
0: least for a minute. I'm waiting no. for something. Yeah,
1: <laughs> throw me a bone here.
0: Well. I, yeah, I thought, I thought the laws that uh, David referred to were great. If you wanted to learn more about that, you can go to his website, which is mentaltenniscoach.com. And there are some other great resources on the mental side of tennis that I wanted to share as well. Vic Braden, who you know many people considered America's tennis coach, wrote a book called Vic Braden's Mental Tennis, How to Psych Yourself Up to a Winning Game. So I wanted to recommend that people check that out as well as there's a great article from the Journal of Human Kinetics, and it's entitled Mental Toughness in Talented Youth Tennis Players, a Comparison Between On-Court Observations. Um, I think that would be some interesting reading. And then probably the most famous mental book in tennis, Brad Gilbert and Steve Jamison. they wrote Winning Ugly, mm-hmm. uh, Mental Warfare in Tennis. So there's some resources for our listeners to pursue their endeavor to get better at the mental game. And I think maybe just even the drill that uh, David Breslow shared with us, starting with that, just working on relaxation because definitely swinging free and swinging easy without tension is uh, where it's at, right?
1: Yes, and I did notice on his website that he had a little section for like free tips I, I did not get a chance to look at any, any of them, but I imagine maybe they're similar to that tip that he shared with us with the tension and the number.
0: Yeah, I really did crack my racket when I was <laughs> trying to stay super loose with my serve uh, so obviously, don't do that. Yeah,
1: don't get too loose.
0: <laughs> yeah, don't get so loose that the racket flies out of your hand. And uh, and it, 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 I just threw it down, and it landed and it cracked the hoop. So I was so bummed. Two hundred dollars down the drain. Oh no,
1: it's not the one that you the one that you have a few
0: of the older one. Yeah, thankfully I have six of them now, five. Uh, it's called the Prince EXO Three Tour One Hundred. Uh, that I love I love that racket it's incredibly flexible it's definitely not for everyone but uh, for me I really enjoy it I guess at some point David Ferreira was playing with it um, or something that looked like it but yeah I really love that racket and I feel like I can play so much tennis because it's so soft so super flexible I think it has a flex rating of 52 So it's one of the most flexible rackets ever made, which Mm -hmm. is kind of crazy. And I'm really glad to see that there's a kind of a trend uh, of newer rackets like with the Wilson Clash has a very low flex and RA rating. The new Head Gravity, which is uh, Alexander's racket, uh, has a lower flex rating. Um, And there's a lot of newer rackets that are coming out that I think are kind of keeping in line with healthy body uh, making sure that it's not too stiff. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are stringing their rackets a lot lower these days. I myself s- string at forty, so I'm probably playing somewhere between thirty five and forty uh, nowadays, which I think is incredibly low for a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'd love to give it a shot. You should. I, I don't think uh, people have this image that, hey, if I string that low, it literally will launch into the moon, you know, mm-hmm. but it really doesn't. Uh, it It doesn't have. That much of an effect, and usually, if your stroke, you know, you can kind of counter your stroke production to accommodate the the lower tension. But that's not mental toughness. We're <laughs> <laughs> I got off on a tangent there, but uh, definitely the mental game. You know, we f- we focus too much, I think, on the physical, on the stroke production, and I think it's one of the interesting things about the mental game in tennis is we have this really high expectation that every shot should be perfect, that I should be able to get the ball over the net and hit a perfect shot pretty much on every shot. And when we don't, like I I think people on the tennis court yell and scream at themselves more than in any other sport that I can think of. <laughs> so you don't see like basketball players missing a free throw and just stopping and yelling and screaming at themselves like, why can't I hit the ball? You yeah. Know, or why can't I shoot a free throw or, you know? But it just doesn't happen. But somehow in tennis we have this really high expectation. So I think that's part of the mental game as well.
1: That's a that's a good thought. I've never I've never thought about that before that way. But I think also because it's an individual sport, it has such a different effect on your mentality. In um, basketball, maybe they're they're just like, it's a reflection of how they, like of the whole team. So they don't want to act that way. I feel like when you, also when you see um, Davis Cup or a Labor Cup, Hopman Cup, when it was around like the team stuff, that tennis, the few team tennis events that happen, I don't think they get that way as much either. I feel like the camaraderie or like having teammates makes you act a little different. But when you're like out there by yourself, it's just so easy to, to just like think of, it's it's just you against whatever, right? And so you can yeah. you feel like you can act
0: that way. Yeah, and I do feel maybe more free to kind of abuse myself Mm -hmm. because hopefully hopefully I'm not abusing other people on the court, but I definitely do abuse myself for missing shots or not playing as well as I think I can. You know, again, there's that expectation idea. So yeah, for sure, um, if you're playing on a team, I think of Nick Kyrgios at the Labor Cup where he literally breaks down and cries because he didn't win against Roger Federer for the team, right? So that's a different mentality. Maybe that also references Byron talking about playing USTA League, where you realize you're playing not only for yourself, but for the team, which Mm -hmm. I think is a great dynamic. Uh, Yeah, it'd be great to get outside of ourselves and just uh, leave that kind of very selfish focus of perfection, ideal, and expectation. Yeah, I think you're right there.
1: But you know what's weird, and maybe this is just a personality thing, and it's probably a something I need to work on. But I have been playing in a soccer league for the past three or four months. Oh, great. And what I realize is before the games, I get sick. I t- don't want to go. And then I get all nervous. And then when I'm playing, I'm, I, the whole time I'm going, why am I playing? Why am I playing? <laughs> I would much rather be playing tennis uh-huh. um, because I feel like um, there's so much pressure to not let the team down yeah and um and I prefer to just like well in tennis I'm like well whatever if I lose it's just I lost
0: Mm -hmm. yeah I definitely personality type I think if you care so much about the people around you and I know you're a very caring person so I can understand that if you care for your team and care for all the people around you losing is even harder and also in that team mentality you feel like there's a lot of peer pressure on you and people looking at you and and watching you versus in tennis, it's just you against the other person, and you know, maybe you don't care what the other person yeah. thinks. You definitely don't care what you you think about yourself. So, yeah. which so is sad a lot less too, pressure. right? Because yeah. you
1: said it too that you could be really hard on yourself.
0: I'm so hard on myself.
1: And then we should probably that's a that's a whole other tennis podcast.
0: It you really know, look is. in the self help yeah
1: section of podcasts, but yeah, yeah the, the inner the inner dialogue we have <laughs> with ourselves, like important. yeah. should probably I, work on that. <laughs> but
0: I do feel one of the reasons I love tennis so much and I encourage it for all of my friends is that it has really helped me control my emotional state that I think um, when I first started playing, I would lose all the time because you do. You just are terrible at playing, right? <laughs> so of course you can't control it. You can't hit the shot you want. And so you just get really frustrated and really upset, which I did. But Um, As I got better, I learned that um, getting upset and all of those things, it really actually debilitated my game and I needed to learn to have emotional control in order to hit the shot that I wanted to get to the next level. So that that has been very healthy and I feel like it's not only uh, infected or impacted my tennis game, but it's impacted my personal life as well. I feel like I'm constantly telling my friends tennis analogies (laughs) (laughs) and how that applies to my daily life situation where I can actually just stay calm, stay in the moment. And wow, it's really been great. So that's the positive side of the mental game of tennis. I think it
1: worked wonders on you because I have known you for many years and I've really only see you as this very calm person.
0: Oh, that's nice of you. No, I'm I'm hardly ever calm. I'm so like <laughs> emotional, and not not whether in an exuberant way or whether in a very harsh way towards myself. So I love being emotional. I think of Roger Federer being emotional. I think I relate to him as well. And yet, even as emotional as I know he is, because he cries and breaks down all the time, and he, he shares his emotion. And I know he used to throw his racket a lot when he was a little kid. Somehow he learned to control and channel that passion mentally so that he could play the greatest tennis of all time. Yeah. So we love that. So that is our little segment on mental tennis and tennis is mental, isn't it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, it really is. I mean, how many times have you and I discussed tennis in general matches or the tour? And it comes up a lot. I mean, the, to me, the big difference between the big three Rafa, Roger, Novak, and, and the rest of the field is mental. When you break down their strokes and their game and their technical abilities, they're all the same. All these people are supremely talented. I mean, maybe some of them have some some gifts in, physically in, um, in areas that other people don't, but there are a lot of players that have just as much game as they do. It's just that, it's that belief yeah, it's that mental thing that makes you believe. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that channels down even to our level on the public courts, there are some people who just keep fighting. They don't give up. They believe that they can get to that finish line and they keep trying. Um, and e- even in coaching juniors, it's something that we're trying to instill in them, right? Don't mm-hmm. give up. Even when you feel like you're oh three down, there is a chance that you can actually win, keep fighting. Um, Developmental toughness, the the to the the grit, the determination, um, and you can turn the score around in your favor. Oh yeah! So I think it's I think it's great in that way. This game so hard. The best it's so
1: part about tennis is that it's like it's not over until right. Someone has to win it. Right. You can't wait for that clock to run out.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: And. I feel like when you're working with kids in that respect, maybe you just show them a couple Nadal or Sharapova matches where they come back from like five love in the third set, yeah, and come back and win seven five or something. <laughs> you know, like some of those crazy. I've seen some crazy comebacks.
0: Yeah, yeah, so cool. Yeah, or even in our own games, um, being like five zero up and having the other person come back. You know, oh that my kind gosh, of thing. that <laughs> happened to me.
1: That happened to me the last time I played. I think uh, really. I was kicking someone's butt so bad. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And I feel like that that's
0: mental, not in the sense of like a weakness, but I think for me, I know that when I'm playing really well and I get overconfident, I just relax. Mm-hmm. and Not relax in a good way, like where I'm free flowing, but I, really I just like allow the energy to go out. My footwork goes away. I don't try for the ball. I don't run as hard. And um, my intensity level is... Not, mm-hmm. is And once my intensity level drops, it takes a very long time, if ever, for it to come back up to match the intensity level that I had before. So part of the mental game of tennis also is just maintaining a certain winning intensity throughout the match, which I think is incredibly hard.
1: Yeah. Do you play uh, three set matches? Have you ever played a five set match?
0: I've never played five sets, but I've played three sets and I've gone for literally like five hours.
1: Oh my God, <laughs>
0: a 3 nice. set where it just goes on and on and on. Uh, you know no we don't, tie breaks no or, tie or what? Break. Okay, exactly yeah, no tie breaks. so you know we'll just play out and you know you could barely walk at the end. <laughs> so definitely. You know, we don't have the physios and the massage therapists and the trainers. You have a
1: massage therapist. (laughs) You can call me.
0: Thank you. You are the best, that's for sure. Well, this has been fun talking about uh, the mental side of tennis, and we want to thank David Breslow for being on our podcast and what an honor it was to have him. He really can break it down, and he's worked with some really great people. So thank you, David, for sharing your... um, the ideas of your laws and and hopefully you guys can pursue connecting with him at mentaltenniscoach.com as well as some of the other resources we shared. Well that's our show. Thank you guys so much for listening. We really appreciate your time and we know you have a lot of choices to listen to for podcasts and we really appreciate you choosing us as one of the people that you listen to. Yes, thank you so much. Valerie, I'm so proud to be sponsored by TennisPal. And I just love what they're doing as a company, really trying to build a community of tennis players all around the United States for people to get connected. So if you love what we're doing, not only here at Tennis Pal Chronicles with the podcast, but also with the app, we are excited to reach out to companies and individuals who want to support the Tennis Pal app and all the great things that we're doing as a team. So we have a couple of sponsorship opportunities available to you and we would love to send the demographics for the app and how many people are downloading it and how many people are using the app as well as how many people are visiting the website. We would love to send all of that to you as a potential sponsor. So please contact me at my email address, pk at tennispal.com.
1: And the P is like Philip, pk at tennispal.com.
0: Hope you have a great week, Valerie. You too, Philip. And may all your serves be, be aces. aces.